Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Speakers Meeting. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Sunday, September 15th, 2013. The share ID number for Friday's meeting, September 13th, is 5132. That's 5132. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Melanie to read the 12 steps. Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Oregon. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Next pastor. Thank you. I will now call on Lisa to read the 12 traditions, please. Good morning, everyone. This is Lisa from South Jersey. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm reading the 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, 
The only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop compulsively overeating. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to, the, to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction, rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. And 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, I pass. Thank you. The whole point of joining Overeaters Anonymous and moving through the steps is to have a spiritual awakening a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Here to share her story of transformation, what she used to be like, what happened, and what she's like today is Kathy G., a recovered compulsive overeater and bulimic from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we welcome you to the line, Kathy, this morning. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. Uh, My name is Kathy G., I am a hardcore bulimic and food addict. Uh, I hope you can all hear me. Um, and Leah, you'll let me know if the sound is a little bit weird. Sounds great right now. Thank you. Okay. So here, I'll just start with my logistics. So I am 57 years old. I was a pretty normal kid till about age 15. And uh, I'll fill in the details in a bit, but basically... Started becoming obsessed with food and body weight and being thin, and thought I found the magic bullet. At about age 16, began uh, purging and rapidly became addicted to food. I always felt like a 300-pound person in a normally weighted body. Uh, I was. I started going to Overeaters Anonymous meetings. Probably, I think I. Wandered into one back in 1970, maybe 75, 76. Wandered out, wandered back in in the early 80s, in and out. I would always buy the literature, come for a couple of years, then throw it out. Then, oh, realized that I was sort of desperate again, wander back in. And this happened for many, many years until finally I came back into the rooms in 2002. struggled for quite some time, and June 2005 is my abstinence date. Uh, I've lived um, clean and sober and in recovery 
since then, thank God, one day at a time. Um, I uh, I don't know about you all, but uh, I always felt um, like the rules didn't apply to me. Like somehow I was different, either way worse or way better. I, I hear a fellow in program talking about, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not much but I'm all I think about or, uh, you know, egomaniac with low self-esteem, that sort of stuff. And I, in all the years that I would come in and out of Overeaters Anonymous, um, I, I didn't get it. Like I would sort of listen to people. Like, I don't know what they're talking about. Now, granted, you know, I was probably still had like bridge mix stuck in my molars, but I, I was somehow, it was like, you know, forgive the analogy, but it was like those feminine hygiene deodorant commercials where you see some beautiful woman leaping through a field of poppies in slow motion, and I had no idea what they're selling. That was sort of my experience with OA. Now, I didn't, um, I didn't ask anybody. I, didn't, I just kept thinking maybe through osmosis I would just get it. Um, didn't read the literature. I'd buy it, of course. Didn't read it. Uh, didn't call any members with long-term absence, nothing. So um, what ha- how my disease developed was that um, I, I found that food was an escape for me. Like I would, in my teen years, so it was really, I always felt comfortable being a tomboy. Like when I was a kid, I'd play Christopher Robin in a play or um, anybody's in West Side Story or the fiddler and fiddler on the roof was like androgynous characters. That to me was really comfortable. No sense of sexuality. I, look, I wanted to look like a 12-year-old boy, straight up and down. And when I started developing sort of female-type traits, to say I freaked out. And food was easy. It was right there. It was this escape. But at the same time, uh, I, was a, I was starting to be a dancer and a mime. And... Um, and uh, I think I would have been, I think I would have been obsessed even if I hadn't been in that sort of career path. But it really reinforced it. Like I just wanted to be lean and spare, and and less uh, the less of me the better. Uh, became obsessed with weighing myself. So I would, um, this is when I was uh, probably 15, 16. I would step on the scale multiple times a day, and uh, if I was up a quarter pound or a half a pound from the day before, in my mind I would have this mental bar graph like this, like, oh, my God, you know, by, by Christmas I'll be, you know, 172 pounds. And uh, I would stand in the bathroom. We had these little square one-inch by one-inch tiles, and I would try to see how many tiles I could fit between my, my two big toes. Like, the, the more tiles, the better. If my thighs touched at one tile, very bad. Um, I'm sorry. I tried to get my feet as close to pop as together, fewer tiles without my thighs touching. So at some point, I had heard uh, about somebody sticking their finger down their throat and inducing vomiting. And I thought, this is the holy grail. This is, this is brilliant. So um, it allowed me to eat more and then get rid of it. And I kept thinking, why don't, why don't people with weight problems do this? This is so smart. Okay, well, you know, I'm not going to share my secret. And really, really rapidly, uh, I just fell into this uh, vat of 
well, actually, literally, I used to fantasize, like, my dream would be to fall into a giant bathtub of cookie dough. And I remember thinking the dream job would be a taste tester at Pillsbury Kitchens. That, to me, was a bliss. You know, I wondered if they had, like, a college degree in that. Maybe I would need that. Maybe it could be just, you know, trade school. I loved um, having this private life, this, this, this private me. The problem was it became um, really more important than people, more important than friends, more important than dance. Um, I, just to keep myself going, I would chew gum, sugar gum, 50 to 60 pieces of gum a day just constantly, or I'd have a, like a hard candy in the back of my throat, so this constant stream of sugar um, down me. In fact, I was sort of still shocked that I didn't develop um, type 2 diabetes. Um, there's a passage in the big book uh, where it was, um, let's see, uh, where it says, um, <laughs> this is how I, this is the opposite for me. So this is under there is a solution on page 25. It says, we have found much of heaven, and we've been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had never, not, not even dreamed. Now that is how I, what my life is like now, but actually in my delusional brain, that's how I felt this food, where food had taken me. Like somehow I had found much of heaven and my rocketed into a fourth dimension. For me, that was like, that was oblivion. Um, I began spending more and more of my time binging and purging and I would, I, my parents would enroll me in dance class and I would not show up. I would binge and purge instead. I started stealing food from stores, I was um, caught stealing several times, um, and I and I would I would plead my case. I was like, you don't understand. I'm I, I'm this bulimic, and like you should you should treat me differently. I'm it's it's not my fault. It was absolutely the sense of um, well, a total lack of taking any ownership for any of this. I started going to therapists. My parents, uh, my mom confronted me with the vomitings at age 17. I, I started seeing a long procession of therapists over many, many years. And the thing was, um, we, me, my parents, the therapists, were operating under the misconception that, um, that in fact, if we just talked about uh, why I wanted to binge, Eventually, I would simply wake up without the desire to binge. It would be absolved of me. There's a passage uh, in the big book on page 39. It says, um, the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. I think that there's a very valid place for whatever kind of therapy that is helpful to a person. I don't believe, I speak from my own experience, that therapy can relieve an addict like me of their addiction. It is, I had a lot of self-knowledge, controlling mother, passive father, you know, those sorts of things, middle child, I'm a pleaser, self-seeking. Uh, I did not keep me abstinent 
from the elevator route, elevator ride down from the sixth floor of the therapist's office down to the main floor where there was a coffee shop, that would be the length of my abstinence. I would go into the coffee shop, buy an entire pecan pie, a can of Ready Whip, and on the drive home, I would just be like scooping out this stuff in my face thinking, well, but actually that's okay because this will eventually, this therapy will somehow seep into me and I will wake up well one day. Um, clearly, that kind of thinking <laughs> would have, um, I think it would have, I either would have died or I would, uh, because of rupturing my esophagus or uh, from my own hand. Um, I, I don't know how much sort of the, the war stories that are useful to illustrate, but uh, just to give you a sense, of just a, some, some beautiful imagery here to just hang your, uh, just paint in front of your, your, your virtual screen here. Um, I would... I worked a lot, at, at a, um, I was a dancer for a long time at a dinner theater here, and so we would do shows, uh, and at 11 o'clock at night, uh, I'd be driving home, and um, and I would stop at a 24-hour convenience store, and um, I would buy my binge foods, just tons and tons of binge foods, and I would binge all night, it'd be half gallons of ice cream, and it would be Betty Crocky brownie mix, and it'd be sticks of butter and brown sugar, until you know five, six in the morning, and then I would uh, go into the bathroom. If I had roommates, I would try to find a 24-hour gas station in the middle of winter. Those of you who are from the Upper Midwest, uh, Holiday Station, Super America, where it's sometimes so cold in the bathroom that the the water in the toilet is frozen. That that was not an obstacle. It was very unpleasant, but not an obstacle. I would um, get the key, and more. I, about half the time, I purged outside of the house and not inside. I would put in earplugs. I would put in on sunglasses. I just didn't want to see anything. I would climb up on the sink and unscrew the fluorescent bulb. Sometimes I would drop it and it would shatter. And I would spend hours in the bathroom. There were times where. There'd be pounding on the door. It would be the gas station attendant. And I'd say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just not feeling well." And they'd pound again. A couple of times, they called the cops, and I would I would come out and you know and just sort of then skulk off. Um, if I if I binged at home, if I was living alone, uh, it would be again you know hours and hours. I'd have to have the water running in the bathroom, the lights off, and um, would, it would take me hours and hours to get rid of this food. Um, my knuckles would bleed. Uh, I'd have tears in the corner of my mouth. My throat would bleed. Um, at the end of purging, I would look like somebody who'd been in a car accident. Blood vessels burst in my, um, sort of my, my cheeks and around all under my eyes, and my eyes would be red and bloodshot. Um, but if I had gotten rid of all that food, it was this sense of power and kind of, um, I don't know, this sense of accomplishment somehow. And then I would, but it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't end there. I would need to eat more, especially I would need to have something to drink. I'd have to have some water, and then suddenly my stomach would be bulging out. I would feel just hideous. So I would exercise compulsively. I would go to, in the morning, you know, have it had almost no sleep, I would drag myself off to dance class. A lot of times I'd take laxatives, a lot of laxatives. In the middle of class, I would be running to the bathroom, 
um, I got down to about 89 pounds a couple of times. And and I remember thinking um, 90 pounds, that means I'm gaining weight. That it, it, it has to be always going down. The needle has to be going down. Uh, I remember at one point um, feeling sort of, you know, out of control. Like this may be okay, maybe somebody could fix me with this, fix this. And I'd heard about somebody at some uh, the university doing an eating disorders program, and I met with the doctor, and he said, um, uh, would you be willing to, to weigh 95 pounds, gain 7 pounds? And I paused, and I said, mm, okay, okay. He said, okay, what about 10 pounds? What about weighing 100 pounds? And I said, no. And he said, you know what? Get out of here. I can't help you. I was indignant. How dare he? It was, um, as I hear a fellow in program say, wanted to take a bath. Sorry, I wanted to get clean, but I did not want to take a bath. I just wanted to somebody, somebody to fix me, just like fix my little brain so that I could just be a normal person. Uh, I, of course, had no idea um, what normal was. Um, there's a passage on page 38 of the big book. It says, um, however intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. And, and I can't say that I was particularly sane in most areas of my life, but I was a, I was a pretty, I, was, I paid my bills. I, uh, I was a professional dancer. I showed up. I did my thing. You know, I, I wasn't on the street. Uh, I was stealing food. I was eating out of garbage cans. I was lying, just constantly lying. Um, but I was, um, I was passing as normal. Um, so the first time that I, I decided to do something about this, I was about, um, I think it was 19, and there was a, a psych ward here in the Twin Cities, and uh, I checked myself into the psych ward. And uh, so for, I was there for 11 weeks. Uh, I had a roommate who was um, highly schizophrenic, and uh, another, another, you know, just all, just all sorts of. This is the adolescent, uh, sorry, the adult psych ward, and they knew about anorexia at the time. So basically, my meal plan there was um, pie and, you know, turkey with gravy and mashed potatoes with butter and stuffing and, you know, just like as much food as possible. I weighed about 95 pounds at the time. And um, I became friends with the nurses, basically, just because that's where the um, Oreo cookies were. And I would hang out with them and just binge on Oreo cookies, and then I would purge in the bathroom there. And after 11 weeks, I had a job at a summer camp, so I just checked myself out. Um, during that time, I, I did learn how to, I learned how to embroider. So I spent the next couple of years embroidering a lot of work shirts. I, did, I learned how to needlepoint, and I believe I made a leather purse um, uh, that was um, not, not effective for me. It was because, again, it was like sort of a, it was just a holding pen. I mean, never mind, it was actually a holding pen where I could still indulge in my behavior. Um, I, I continued to... I, I knew that something was wrong with me because that's why I kept seeking out therapists. And uh, I remember one therapist 
um, saying to me, you know, which hand do you induce vomiting with? I said, well, I'm right-handed, so my right hand? Okay, I want your left hand to talk to your right hand. What would your left hand say? Like a kind mother to your right hand. And, you know, here's the, here's the part about what, what the, the pickle that I found myself in. Maybe you too, if, if you've ever gone to a therapist or sought outside help, is like, well, this sounds a bit harebrained. I mean, frankly, always sound harebrained to me too, but it sounds harebrained, but I'm the one with my head in the toilet, so okay. So I would sort of like do this little role play with one hand talking to the other. Suddenly she'd have me punch a pillow a whole bunch. That's your mom. Punch, punch, punch. Well, sounds weird, but hey, if I wake up well one day, whatever. Um, and you know, over time there were a, a lot of um, a lot of different professionals who would have their own um, techniques. And you know, I'm just I was a, a, a middle child of pleaser. I wanted to people to love me, so I would just do as I was told, and um, and then proceeded to do what I wanted to do, which was binge and vomit. Um, there's uh, something in the um, in the big book um, under page, on page 328. Um, oh, I love this. Okay. When I look back now, it's hard to imagine I didn't see a problem with my drinking. But instead of seeing the truth, when all of the yets, as in that hasn't happened to me yet, started happening, I just kept lowering my standards. So for me, it was things like, okay, as long as I have been bulimic, less time than I've been, let's see, than I've been not bulimic, I'm fine. So by age 30, I'd been bulimic 15 years. Therefore, I've been bulimic an equal number of years to the amount of time not bulimic. Oh, that's okay, as long as I haven't been bulimic for twice the number of years as I've been not bulimic. Fast forward to age 45, still bulimic. Um, I, every time I would um, emerge from the bathroom, from another horrible all night of binging, I'd think, this is it. This was the binge and the purge and all, never, never, never again. Um, page 329. Um, uh, ooh, it's like, um, oh gosh, sorry. All the fear, shyness, and disease evaporated with that first burning swallow of bourbon straight from the bottle during a liquor cabinet raid at a slumber party. I got drunk, blacked out, threw up, had dry heaves, was sick to death the next day, and I knew I would do it again. Now, in he, in my life, it was in the back of my head. I kind of knew what I that I would do it again, but I would just, I would be so determined that somehow this was it. I, I. I I'd blown through everything that I needed to. Uh, in, let's see, there was the treatment center at age 19. Finally, at a, in about uh, 1990, oh, when was that? Anyway, in about, nine, eight, oh, God, somewhere. <laughs> I don't know how long ago this was. I put myself into treatment in Florida. And it was a 12-step based eating disorder program, 30 days. And we had we had Overeaters Anonymous meetings there. We um, they they actually they gave us our portions. Um, you know, it was all measured out for us. Uh, it was what I called spa prison. I barely had to make my own bed, but I thought this is it. I, I am I am I am dry cleaned. I'm it's perfect. The problem was 
there was this vanilla yogurt. It was in this one lone fridge. I think it had been at Stafford, somewhere in the hallway. And I'd opened it one day, and I saw that vanilla yogurt. And for my entire 30 days, or from whenever I saw that yogurt, I obsessed about that. I obsessed about it. Didn't tell anyone. The day that I was released, that little graduation ceremony for me, um, you know, yay, you're clean. Um, I stole that yogurt, ate it on the way to the airport. I was binging before I even got on the plane to Minneapolis and immediately, immediately went back to, you know, my, my binging and purging. I put myself back into that treatment center a year later. Uh, for three weeks, that's what my insurance company was willing to um, pay for. And I think that there's a great place for treatment. Uh, if, if a person is going to detox, to get off the sugar, and they need a controlled environment, I think that treatment can really kickstart that. Uh, what I've come to know about myself after putting myself into treatment again in 2002 and relapsing within probably five days is that everything that I need to do and to know is it's in the big book, it's in the 12 and 12, 12 steps of 12 traditions of, I, I use um, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and, uh, and, and through the meetings, through working with my sponsor, talking with my fellows in the program. Um, for me, uh, I'll talk about sort of how I work my program of recovery, but, but basically it, it has the decision to put down the food could not come from any external anything. That, had, that, that was the only thing that I had to do. Well, there are two things. One is only I could choose to believe in a power greater than myself, and only I could choose to put down the food. Uh, I had a fantasy of, of just having somebody handcuff me and tie me to the leg of their chair so that I could not binge, that somehow that would stop me, or actually have my teeth wired shut. In fact, I envied people who had jaw surgery. I thought, that's brilliant. I need to, have, I need to break my jaw so that they wire my face shut. Now, I didn't play the movie out to the day they take the wires off. Sort of like um, in the play Romeo and Juliet where she takes some potion where she's dead, like fake dead, dead for 24 hours. That's what I wanted. I thought if I could be dead for 30 days and then wake up, then, then, it would be, then I'd be fine, then I'd be done. It never really occurred to me that I would simply wake up to my life. Wherever I go, there I am. Um, what happened when I moved from Minneapolis to New York City? Absolutely. I took myself with me. Took me and my binging and vomiting with me. My, my shoplifting of food. My, I, had, I did something called what was changing labels. There'd be an item. It was back in the day, sort of before they had a lot of barcodes, uh, sticky labels, and I would just change the label. So I'd take a 99-cent label and stick it on something that was $5 and, and pay for it and walk out of it. I was caught doing that. I was caught in uh, oh, food service on campus. I wasn't in school even at the time. I just went there, and I ate, I don't know, multiple pieces of pie in the cafeteria line um, in that whole area. And as I'm checking out, one of the staff comes up to me with a little stack of empty pie plates, and he said, uh, do you want to pay for these too? 
And I, I, once again, you know, oh, I, I'm in bulimic. You have no idea. And the room is spinning around me, and I'm trying to find a way out. Like, the exception should be made. I'm, I'm, I'm different. It's not my fault. But this was it's just so crazy delusional um, of, of, of my thinking. Uh, let's see. So fast forward to coming back into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. I was seeing a therapist, and uh, she said to me about the second time I saw her, she said, um, I think you need to go back to OA. And she said, I am a member of OA. I think you need to go back. The only stipulation is you can't go to my home group. She told me which one that was. So this was, oh, in the late 90s. I started going back to Overeaters Anonymous, and um, I... Again, I would come late. I would leave early. I, I, uh, I felt sorry for people in OA because um, they would get together for coffee afterwards. And I thought, it is so sad that, that this, is, this is the best they can do for friends. A bunch of people like each other. And it's just so tragic. Uh, now, in recovery, I think that we are um, a lovely, amazing, impressive, diverse, quirky group of people, and some of my very best friends are in our fellowship. I just feel um, incredibly lucky. Like I, every once in a while I think, God, my mom would be, she'd be, some, if she were just an addict, God, it would be so awesome. She could, she could go to OA or AA or whatever. Or, you know, I think about that with other people. Dang, if they were just a little sicker, then they would need this 12-step program. You have to be quite sick. <laughs> to um to do what we do uh to make this kind of commitment. I'm really glad I'm this sick. Uh so um what happened for me was um I floundered in Overages Anonymous for years. I just kept picking up the food. I kept make you know, running the show myself. I, I was my own higher power. I I sort of, I, I treated it like a poo-poo platter, like a little hors d'oeuvre tray, like, hey, I'll do a little bit of this. You know, the reading, I don't think that, you know, big book, whatever, you know, doing service, nah. Um, and, um, and the whole concept of just one day at a time, um, I, I just, well, for one thing, one day at a time, I couldn't, I couldn't do it for an hour at a time. Which actually, oh, here was an interesting one. Of, one of my various therapists had um, had a really brilliant, yet another. And being a little bit sarcastic, it it was not a good idea. It was not. I, I'm sure she meant well, and she thought it was probably this would be the magic bullet. Here is what it was. Apparently, the vagus nerve somewhere in the brain controls uh, some sort of. Uh, not impulse control. What is the vagus nerve control? Yeah, I really don't know. Sorry. Um, the main thing is there was a medication that acted on the vagus nerve. And if if I had a desire to binge, I would take this this pill and it would somehow quiet the vagal nerve and it would relieve me of the desire to binge. The catch was it took 30 minutes to kick in. Now, I don't know about you all, but when you have the desire to binge 30 minutes, I'm sorry, <laughs> waiting 30 minutes. Um, if I could wait 30 minutes, I wouldn't need the pill. 
I wouldn't need a therapist or OA or anything. So um, that that um, was not a successful uh, uh, remedy. Um, so finally, um, so I'm I'm, I'm uh, back in Overeaters Anonymous, and uh, I just can't get honest. I can't get honest with my food. I'm I can't get honest with with the people in the the rooms. I just I just I feel despicable in every in every corpuscle of my body, and um, and it got to the point where I didn't. I didn't want to wake up anymore. I felt like um, I I wanted to die in my sleep. I didn't have um, I didn't have the, the will, the, the courage, really, to to off to off myself. I kept wishing that I were just made normal. And um, in the big book on um, chapter three, more about alcoholism, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. Hmm. So, because I kept thinking, all right, what if I just don't eat recreational sugar? Like, recreational sugar is like, um, <laughs> like cupcakes. Non-recreational sugar, well, that would be like, um, let's say, jam, high sugar jam, and uh, like scones. Now, some people in the program actually probably can do that. For me, sugar was mess. There was no eating one of anything like that. There was no, there was no, um, there was no playing with it. There was just no playing with it. It was like again, like an alcohol. Okay, sorry, I got a little uh, message from the about muting or unmuting. Um, so, um, uh, it says physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree that there is no such thing as making a normal drink or out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in this class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. I would go from, um, I knew that sugar was a huge problem. So then I would go to sugar-free jam, and I would eat the jar. Okay, I'm going to go with fruit-sweetened jam. That's the key. I would eat the whole jar. I'd go back to, oh, screw it, you know, regular high-sugar grape jelly. Um, and every time I would eat, eat this, it was, you know, my whole throat would sort of swell up and I would get a cold. I would, you know, it was, it was so clear that this was, um, this, this was crazy for me. And I would continue to repeat the experiment of the drink, continue day after day. In 2005, um, I had been in, back in OA for a few years and um, I had, it seemed to me that the people who were really hardcore, there was another bulimic in, in the meeting that I was going to. I'd known her for years. And she, she had gotten recovery in 2001. And um, she seemed happy, joyous, and free. 
as did the other people in my meeting. They had what I wanted. I just didn't want to do what they were doing. That just It just seemed like, oh, man, they were doing service. Yikes, they were coming early to the meeting. They were setting up chairs. They were, geez, they had sponsors, you know, and, and um, but it was, they just, they, they absolutely had what I wanted. Um, I just, I wasn't there yet. On a totally unrelated note, around the same time, I was working with a financial advisor, and he had suggested, you know, there's an investment you could make. It's like a, like a life insurance policy, some sort of annuity thing. Um, what you need to do is have a phone interview with somebody. They're going to ask you about your health history. They have to pee in a cup, and I don't know, they'll take some blood. They want to assess, basically, how sick you are. So I said, okay. So I uh, called this 800 number. This was early June 2005. And it was about a 45-minute interview, everything having to do with you know, medical problems and psychological problems. And, and, uh, and I lied about everything. You know, here I put it, myself in the psych ward um, once. I'd been in treatment by then three times. I'd been in outpatient therapy, in, you know, in a bulimics group. I had uh, been on, oh, my God, every single antidepressant mood stabilizer uh, that had antipsychotic that had come on the market, uh, seeing multiple different therapists and psychotherapists and psychiatrists. Um, but, you know, basically my response was, yeah, you know, I, I was in a bad mood once in the early 80s or, you know, yeah, I used to, I feel, used to feel anxious, but it was like mostly before exams. I mean, just, just nothing. So I got off the phone and um, I was talking to a fellow in, in the program and, she said, you know, that, that's actually lying, and, um, and, and we don't do that. <laughs> that's uh, not how we live. Like, hmm, okay. And, and my husband said, oh, that's a whole other thing about my relationship with my husband. But he said, I think that was a really bad idea what you did because just for, for no other reason, if they find out that you weren't telling the truth, then they could somehow, this could jeopardize your investment. So. They both said, you need to call them back the next day. I called back, and I, I told an interviewer, you know, they don't, they don't really care. They're being paid probably by the hour. Uh, I said, you know, I had an interview with somebody yesterday. and wasn't completely honest. I'd like to do this phone interview again. So um, this time, you know, we're talking, and I'm telling them, you know, yeah, I had this, I had sort of an eating disorder back in, you know, when I was in my teens and early 20s, um, and, uh you know, and uh, I, I did, I was actually hospitalized. I put myself in a psych ward for, you know, again, back then. Um, and about 15 minutes into it, I just, oh, my God. I stopped the person. I said, could you just delete everything that I told you? Um, I'm, I'm still not being completely honest. So, yeah, whatever. So she deleted everything. And I started over and told Everything, answered everything. The last time that I induced vomiting, which actually had been about two months before that. And, and briefly, um, there was a, a big case in the news, a woman named Terry Shivo, who was um, brain dead in Florida, kept alive uh, on life support. She was one of us. Um, she was bulimic, anorexic, and compulsive overeater. Uh, she'd been both, I think, 100 pounds and 200 pounds. And I believe that 
somehow it was a brain aneurysm or a stroke or whatever blood clot, and it happened, uh, it was related to her eating disorder. And when I found out about that, I just thought, that is way too scary. My fear is that I wouldn't die, that I would, I would become brain dead or brain damaged. So I'd stopped purging. That did not stop me from um, compulsively overeating. Uh, so, so anyway, you know, last time I purged was two months ago. I told about every drug I'd been on, every treatment program, everything that had happened to me uh, that I'd stopped drinking in 1989. Anyway, at the end of the phone conversation, I got off the phone, and I felt clean, like I I haven't been honest since I was about eight years old. I don't have to remember my lies. I don't have to remember... Um, what I told this person versus that person, it had become habitual for me to lie. Because I was so dishonest about my food, it had just crept into all areas of my life. And I, I thought, I want the rest of my life, all of my life, to, to be this clean and honest. And um, the next day, I, uh, I called somebody in the program who, uh, and asked her to be my sponsor. What I found was that I had, um, I wonder if I can find this passage. Um, it's about, um, you know, self-will run riot and, and yikes. Uh, um, anyway, uh, but about, you know, I had been running my own show. I had been making my all my decisions. And frankly, my best decisions got me to a really crummy place, like uh like somebody I heard in the room say, you know, I couldn't lower my standards fast enough. I couldn't. I was like, I was just, I was, I was, I was plunging to the center of the earth. So, um, so uh, I needed, I needed to work with a sponsor. I needed to be accountable because being accountable myself had not, for the last um, since age 15 to age 49, had not proven terribly successful. Um, Page 33 in the big book. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. I had been holding on to that, that little fantasy, like one day I'm going to wake up well and I can, I can be like those people, like in the, the commercials that I see, like three women sitting around sipping wine and having like, you know, an entree, a little looking entree, ha, 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 laughing, looking beautiful, and poreless skin, and, 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 and beautiful eyebrows, and probably having sex all the time, and that's what I, that, that was going to be me. Someday, somehow I would be transformed into somebody, I'd be five foot seven and probably blonde. I'm five two, dark hair. Um, somehow, I would be, when, when, when it says rocket into the fourth dimension, for me, it'd be like, Witness protection program, give me a whole new facelift, and while you're at it, a brain transplant. Um, this sponsor said to me, yeah, I will sponsor you on the grounds that you are completely honest about everything, everything. Uh, one, of my, one of my habits was food hoarding. Like at work, there was a, a client meeting, and there would be you know, leftovers. Uh, nobody said, oh, by the way, Kathy, feel free to take that pound of turkey home with you. I mean, if they did, then I could say, okay, or not. And I would um, just pack stuff up and take it home. Um, I had to tell her about that. I had to tell her about things like, you know, for me, again, any compulsive eating 
is dangerous. So they had sugar-free hot cocoa at work. Now, um, it was called sugar-free, so that should be good enough. All of the ingredients on there are just all forms of sugar. And I would dump four packages into a cup, put like a tablespoon of water in there and call it sugar-free hot cocoa. Told her about that. Uh, Told her about just every way that I played with the food. Because when I was playing with the food, I was not of maximum love and service. Food was my primary relationship. So uh, June 5th, 2005 was, um, was the beginning for me. And I have to say that that phone call with the, um, the, the, the health interviewer, um, that was being rocketed into the fourth dimension for me. Um, I, for me, in order to stay clean and abstinent, I weigh and measure my food, and I commit my food to a sponsor. It's just what I need to do because I have no idea what a moderate portion is. A moderate portion or a moderate meal could be um, popcorn and an apple and a diet soda. I mean, that's moderate. There's no sugar in it. Or it could be uh, six egg whites and a half a head of lettuce with ketchup on it. I don't know. I mean, you know, Clearly, I don't really know what's good for me. Um, I had been seeing therapists all these years because if we could just establish for me greater self-esteem, that I wouldn't want to abuse myself with food. That was the theory. On page 336, it says, when I asked how I could find self-esteem, you told me, by doing worthwhile acts. You explained the big book had no chapters entitled into thinking or into feeling only into action. I found plenty of opportunity for action in AA. I could be just as busy just as busy and helpful to others as I wanted to be as a sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I always felt like it was up to you all to do the service. You know, I, 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 was, um, I was too sick or too busy. Now, when, when I say too busy, let me just give you a sense of... Uh, I'm married to a very self-sufficient man. He does not need taken care of. I have no children. I have no pets. I have one house plant that shockingly, in spite of my benign neglect, has survived me. So it's not like I have a busy life. You know, I work full-time. I'm like, you know, no... Sorry, uh, got the little the little alert. So, um, so uh, here are some ways that um, my life has changed. Um, this is also from page 336. Um, at five months, I realized that the world might never build a shrine to the fact that I was sober. I understood that it was not the world's job to understand my disease. Rather, it was my job to work my program and not drink no matter what. That being abstinent, is not the end. It's the means. And if people can be abstinent, you know, just mo- having three moderate meals a day or just abstaining from sugar or whatever, whatever it is, it's just to get my head out of the bag of chips or bag of brown sugar and out into the world, that it doesn't, whatever it is, that's, that's my job. And um, the longer I'm in recovery, the, the more service I need to do. I, 
the more active I need to do, the more I need to say yes, the more I need to offer my help or, you know, participate in a program at a group level or intergroup level or, frankly, you know, help my parents or there's an empty, gro- there's a grocery cart that's been abandoned in the parking lot of a store. I, I need to put it back. Um, if there's, you know, junk on the side of the road and, you know, and like, or I'm taking a walk and there's, it's like, what are you doing, Kathy, that's so important that you can't pick that up and throw it away? I created so much garbage in the world, emotionally and, uh, and actually physically. Like, I would, all of the decades that I would be um, vomiting in the bathroom, I had to have water running. And, um, you know, when I think about people who live in some countries where they have to walk miles to get water, and I just, I just blatantly threw it away. Um, I binged and vomited up so much food. You could, you could feed a third world nation, developing nation, on, on probably the calories that I consumed and vomited. Um, so today, uh, what do I do? I, um, I get up in the morning. I, I have a couple of sponsees, so I, I talk to my sponsees. I listen and help them to the best of my ability. Um, I call my sponsor. I commit my food what I'm going to eat for that day. I read her um, something that I've written out of a passage in the big book. I do a, a daily inventory based on the big book. And, if, you know, if I talk, I have to say, you know, have I been selfish? Have I been, um, sorry, have I been resentful? Have I been selfish? Have I been dishonest? I've been afraid and own my part in that. Uh, it is not somebody else's fault. If somebody, um, if some person, place, or thing disturbs me, Gosh, I wish I had that right in front of me. It is something in me that has to be changed. I um, Now, it is a program of action. Um, it, the serenity prayer is complicated for me. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. So if I don't like, um, if I don't like the way somebody is behaving at work, uh, it's probably something in me that has to be changed. Or is it that I need to respectfully say to them in private, uh, I'm wondering if we can talk about how this project is going, this collaboration. Uh, I cannot gossip. I cannot afford to gossip. The tradition of anonymity for me is it is principles over personalities. It, if I indulge in those old behaviors, then um, it probably will lead me back to the food. But if, if it, even if it doesn't, I'm simply dry. I'm not sober. I am simply uh, a person who's on a diet then. And I, um, those behaviors make me hate myself. And if I hate myself, I'm thinking only about myself. And I'm not useful to you, to my parents, to my my spouse, my coworkers, the stranger on the street, um, that whole that, that passage about the way to develop self-esteem is to do things for other people. That is such – the program is so simple, the premise that it's based on the premises of being of love and service. Wow, it does not get simpler than that. Not necessarily easy, but simpler, um, but simple. Um, Something else. Oh, yes, here on page 448. Um, uh, let's see, let's see this. Thing. 
from, if I don't know what's good for me, then I don't know what's good or bad for you or anyone. So I'm better off if I just don't give advice. Don't figure I knew what's best and just accept life on life's terms as it is today. Um, now, accepting life on life's terms is basically like uh, I'm getting older. I'm 57. I, um, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm never going to get younger. My parents are never going to get healthier. My mom is never going to be the young spy woman that she once was. Uh, but there is, there is wonderment in all of it. This was a really tricky year for me. It's probably the, the hardest year I've had in recovery. My, um, I had both hips replaced, one in December and one in April. I was in end-stage osteoarthritis. Um, I had a herniated disc in my back, and I had back surgery. And I, I remember thinking, um, I'm, on, I'm as unhappy as I was in the food. I really, I, I didn't see, I couldn't see my way out, but the one thing that I knew how to do was what, what I heard from my fellows. I just put one foot in front of the other, and I just, I talk to you all, I go to my meetings, I do service, I read and write, I weigh and measure my food because that works for me. I, um, and, and just hopefully do the best I can. And, and, he, and now, you know, middle of September, uh, I feel part of the human race again. Um, it just it feels great. So it's like, well, maybe, maybe this was a good thing for me to, to experience some pain and, and discomfort and not, and not eat, eat over it and not um, use it as an excuse. If you had my problems, you would, you would eat too uh, because there is no problem that will be fixed, um, that will be fixed uh, by food. On page um, 492 of the big book, Long ago, I learned that no matter how uncomfortable I was physically, I felt better by getting out of myself and helping someone else. It has also helped, it has also helped to learn how to laugh at myself and not take myself so seriously. I am aware that I am not the only person on the earth with problems. And that is so incredibly true. And, and one of the things that I love, love about our, um, our, our fellowship is, um, oh gosh, it is... Uh, Oh, it's about, <laughs> we are not a glum lot. Uh, this is page 132. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. I just love that. I love that the idea of, especially with my fellows, where there's sort of a shorthand that's sort of like belonging to a joke, um, community where you can go, 42, <laughs> you know, 67, oh my God, that was great, she told that really well, that somehow we have the shorthand with each other because we have been in the same depths and pit of hell and then, you know, we're climbing out together. Uh, our brands of eating disorder are all a little different, but, um, but inside I feel we're exactly the same. Um, I had a sponsor who was a, um, a weight loss surgery survivor and, um, she had gotten up to, I don't know, 350 pounds. And she said, the reason I only got up to 350 pounds is, you know, because I dieted. Uh, anyway, when they, when they did her surgery, she said, the problem was they should have operated on my brain, not my stomach. And 
she she didn't know anything about bulimia or starving, anorexia, overexercising, um, but she knew about my she knew about my problem, my fundamental problem, which was an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind. I had to find recovery for both of those. Uh, so today, I do I feel happy, joyous, and free. Incredibly grateful that that there are fellows like you all. I, I don't know. I think we cover the earth. Uh, I feel like we're sometimes a secret society, like um, like like the invasion of the body snatchers or something, only in a good way. Like, oh uh, yeah, you're one of us, and um, that is that is a huge comfort. I know that I'm not alone in this. So um, I think I've talked long enough. So yikes, it's 8:30. So I will. Um, should I stay? Uh, Thank on, you on so much. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Yes, remain unmuted if you would. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us this morning. Thank you for your time and your energy. We're now going to invite people to direct any questions your way related to uh, your story or your program and your program of recovery. If you can stay a little bit with us. Um, Press star one if you'd like to ask any questions of Kathy this morning. Hi, this is Sue L. from Minneapolis. Hey, Sue. Good morning. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to thank you, Kathy G., for your experience, strength, and hope. And I was so impacted by the transformation. Um, I was talking to someone. I know I happen to know Kathy very well, and I was talking to someone, um, and they had mentioned that they didn't even recognize your voice because it was so much less frenetic and calm that they they didn't even know it was you. And that's that's what happens as a result of working these steps in our program are these complete transformations. And um, I am very glad I've been able to walk alongside you with yours. So thank you. Oh, back thank at you, Sue Thank you so much. You know, it occurs to me, too, I used to have a lot of car accidents and a lot of injuries. And um, I have many fewer, okay, you know, back herniation, all that aside, but still, like, just a lot less. And I think program just, like, you know, we're taught to put a pause in things. So thank you. Thanks, Sue L. I heard Hi. a voice. Yes. Yeah, it's mine. Go ahead. Hi, good morning. Hi, good morning, and thank you so much, Kathy. You had me on my the edge of my seat. And um, I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about how you um, take somebody through the steps and through the book, take someone through a sponsee through the big book, um, obviously working the steps. You know, um, uh, there are, let's see, like I said, I don't know, how to exactly talk about this, but in the meeting that I go to, there are some questions. So, Leah, maybe, can you help me out here a little bit just in terms of uh, how to couch that? Like, Sure, um, sure. Um, yes, there are, um, you know, 
ways of going through the big book that are guided, guided instructional materials that guide people through the steps and, um, you know, a tour guide of someone who's already been through the steps, who has implemented steps four through nine, uh, shares in the same way, you know, utilizing materials out there. We know those materials, uh, whether it's oabigbook.org. Uh, um, these are the same materials, the same uh, step four charts, those kind of things. So I know Kathy might be hesitant to bring up oabigbook.org, but uh, we're allowed to do that. So okay. thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah Grace, for your for your question. And Anyone else? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, once you know, we get into especially the fourth step. Uh, I feel like the big book does a really, really nice job with um, you know being pretty prescriptive on the um, you know starting with uh, oh gosh, here we go into um, into. Is it into action? Wait, sorry. It is how it works. Okay, so in the chapter how it works, um, where we where we look at like on page sixty five, the resentment, the cause, and how it affects. So what I ask my sponsees to do is to to go through that in a very systematic way, and then and then what we talk about is. Um, What's my part? I really don't care who the resentful at and what the cause is. And how, what I care about is um, what, what's my part in this? Where, where, was I selfish? Was I self-seeking? Because of that, they could be, they could be dead. They, could, they, didn't, they might not even know. It could be that I'm, I'm pissed off at, you know, at some former president. You know, like that person's not losing any sleep over it, but I'm the one. It's taking up space in my brain. So we... We go through the steps that way. Then, you know, I listen to their fifth step. Uh, we, we go through, you know, the sixth and the seventh and the, the eighth step that um, the big book also, you know, listing out all the pe- people, uh, situations, institutions I might have harmed um, and then, you know, making amends. So we work together on is it something that needs to be a letter written and then not sent because uh, it might, let's say, um, cause um, some interference in their, their married life. It might be an old, you know, a past relationship or maybe because of my shoplifting or their shoplifting. You know, maybe it's that I need to uh, make financial amends if, if at all possible meet face-to-face. So basically, you know, four through nine. And then once we get through those steps, it's that daily inventory. And so then I'll ask my sponsees to do, you know, when they do their reading and writing and then to take stock of their day and and I feel like that helps us all stay clean. So anyway, that's how that's how um, I, I have done it. Thank you very thank much. I appreciate that, and I'm sorry about the complexity complexity of the question, but thank you. Thank you. No problem. No problem. Again, I'll mention um, at this point for those materials, you would want to look at oabigbook.info. Uh, again, it's a book free of charge that uh, lays out the step work and guides people as to uh, how to take others through the steps, and you'll find fourth-step uh, charts there as well. So that's a good good resource to have. That's oabigbook.info. Make use of that. Any other questions on the line this morning?
star one to unmute. Good morning. I have a question. Go right ahead. This is Mary Lee in California. Can you suggest anything for someone that was as young as you? I, I know a person has to hit the the end of the road or hit the bottom. But was there anything anyone could have done when you were a teenager that would have made a difference? Wow. I have asked myself that question so many times. Um, it's it's painful for me to think, um, you know, that it took me from age 15 to 49 to find recovery, to be willing to admit, I don't know. I don't know if our program, I mean, there are teenagers who find recovery, but it feels like I had to be so mutilated and so just broken before I was willing. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. You know, I'll give that some thought, and I'll, I'll, if I come up with any more ideas, I'll, I'll communicate to Leah, and she can share, because I... I wish I could say, I don't know, God help them. Thank you, Mary Lou, for the question. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, sharing our stories, that's why the big book says that our past is the greatest possession we have. Hopefully sharing these stories uh, for those that are listening and young you know, might be able to see that uh, compulsive overeating, bulimia, et cetera, is just continues to be a road to hell, only it speeds up as we go along. Any other questions this morning for Kathy? Star one to unmute. Going once. This is Alice. I have a question. Alice, go right in there. Go ahead. This is Alice. I'm from Florida. Um, thanks, Kathy, for sharing all that. Um, I'm also a hardcore bulimic in recovery four months today. Um, one, I identified with so much, so much of the story, obviously. Um, and my my question, or I just want to know your experience on this, is that um, – yeah, I feel I felt like I crossed a, a line with mental illness when I, um, as I progressed in my bulimia and anorexia, that maybe I can't return from. Um, you know, not just not just the vomiting itself, but the rituals and the lengths I was willing to go um, to be able to purge in secrecy. Um, you know, to dispose of the plastic bags of vomit took on a life of its own. So now, as and I, I began as a teen, and I'm 50 years old now. Um, I find myself I'm I'm working the steps. Um, I worked the steps before. I had a year of, of I'm not going to say recovery. I had a year of abstinence and bailed during the ninth step. So I just couldn't bear to. <laughs> that was my pride or what? I just could not bear to go up to these people and tell them what I had done. Um, now I. I want to know how you how you come to peace with the really bizarre, mentally ill things 
we did, you know, the gas station bathrooms, the things like that, the um, burying vomit, just all these things that I have done to know that I went to that length. Um, I tell myself, you know what, it's this, I stayed in this disease too long and it damaged my brain and how can I ever truly be rid of that? And some people tell me, um, you can't. We're always going to be a little crazy when it comes to our disease. Um, so I just want to know how you um, came to feeling like you can be a member of society, even with what you have done, the lengths you have gone to in this mental illness. Um, and I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Thanks. Thanks, Alice. Congrats on your four months of um, abstinence. That's fabulous. Um, you know, I um, I think, the, okay, in really practical sense, that's why I have to do service. That's why I want to do service. The more I throw myself into service, it's sort of like um, it helps to, it helps to, um, it starts, the balance sheet is a little bit heavier now, you know, on the right, like, ah, but, um, I don't share what I did with randomly with everybody. Actually, I went through a phase of like, oh, if I just confess my sins to everyone, like randomly, like some brand new boyfriend or, you know, first date or some guy on a subway platform, you know, and I would just tell everyone and people would, you know, run, run screaming from the zip code. But now I'm pretty selective. And, um, and sometimes I just think, well, it's, it's made me who I am. And I, and I don't believe that, that you are, that any of us are irrevocably damaged. I think anorexia is the hardest. People who have been, you know, 60 pounds for so long, it, it can change brain chemistry. But I, I believe that we're way more resilient than we, than we know. And so I think just, um, uh, I don't, I'm okay with it. Like somehow I feel like, hey, well, you know, it's like, you know, some people cut have done a lot of cutting and some their, their scars are, are different. Um, and I, I believe that service. Yeah, I guess that'd be it. And talking about it to your fellows. Thank you, Alice, for the question. Anyone else before we close up shop this morning? Any other questions? Star one to unmute. AJ? Go ahead. Yes. Um, I'm just curious. Um, and, and she probably shared this. I just um, I had some interruptions, but um, she was in the program when she was really young. Did she ever hear, um, I guess uh, I was in OA in and out like her, but I never really heard the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And oh. just wondering if she heard that when she was young and it mm. made a difference. You know, um, that's it's interesting because I, I didn't really talk about that even until the end. I don't think I would have believed it those early years because I felt like um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have obsession of the mind. I could somehow I could take it or leave it. I'm just choosing to take it. And the allergy of the body, honestly, I, I kept denying that that was true because some days I could have like some sugar. See, see how I do this? Here's a cookie. You know, I can, I can take it. Or, um, and uh, sorry, just a moment. Um, I'm gonna, this is my sponsee. I'm just going to tell her. I'm going to call her back. Oops. Um, okay. So anyway, um, so I don't. I just. Gosh, I. I don't know. I think that if somebody had presented me with 
a, a program of recovery, and I'd seen recovery in people my age, maybe then, but I didn't see much of it, and I certainly didn't see um, anyone my age in recovery. Maybe that was it. Um, oh, I wish I could provide more hope, but um, I don't think that um, right now I'm just not sure. Is this such well, a grand note to end on? <laughs> I have one other question. If, sure. if you had a young person, do you think it's something to present them with so that it sticks in their mind, even if it might not stick with them, or they may be like you and just don't believe it, but it's still in the back of their head so that when maybe down the road they do hit bottom, it would be? Well, you know, I would say it can't hurt to try. Mm-hmm. You know, I think exposing people to the message, and maybe it will take. I think that's a, a really, really good idea. Um, yeah, exposing them. So, um, like, I don't know, Leah, what your policy is, but if, if, that, if that person would want to talk to me, I'd be happy to. <laughs> so. Yeah, if you'd like to leave your phone number, Kathy, that would be very helpful. Sure. Um, okay, my phone number is, I'll give you my cell, 612-867-9804. Thank you very much, Kathy. Thank you. And thank you for your time. Thank you to everyone on the line who asked questions this morning. I'm going to close the meeting in the way that we always close our meetings here at A Vision for You, and that's from page 164 from the chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.